one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Evolver. Sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. It seems to me that there are two kinds of witches these days. Let's call one kind the weekend witch. She goes to full moon celebrations, owns a couple of tarot decks, checks out the witchy TV shows, dabbles with herbal remedies, has a few witchy outfits in her closet, and might even have tried out a spell or two. Then there's the dedicated practicing witch, who's all in. She's a member of a coven. Her altar is built around images of ancient goddesses. She's deep in astrology and tarot. She returns regularly to a few favorite trees. And she has enough experience with calling in spirits that she's wary of what happens when you cast spells recklessly. Today, on All Hallows' Eve, we tip our pointed hat to all the witches everywhere. But on this episode, we're walking the path with group two those for whom witchery is a spiritual practice. The wise woman tradition seems to be as old as humanity itself, and even two millennia of patriarchy, which has gotten us into the terrible mess we're in, wasn't able to wipe it out. In our time, the grandmothers are rising, reintroducing to our culture the importance of natural cycles, the intelligence of the body, the prevalence of occult energies, and the profound healing potential of plants. The witch archetype is going through a renaissance, and it's global. My guest today, Pam Grossman, sees the return of the witch as a movement, a part of fourth-wave feminism. As Pam puts it, the witch is being embraced as an icon of rebellious feminine power, and it's a meme that's just right for social media. But Pam herself is a longtime practicing witch, for whom the archetype is much more than a symbol. It's a way of orienting yourself in a world that's alive with magic. Pam Grossman is a writer, curator, and teacher of magical practice and history. She hosts the Witch Wave podcast and is author of the comic What is a Witch? and the forthcoming book Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power, to be released next year. Her group art shows and projects include Language of the Birds, Occult and Art, which showed at the NYU ADWSE Gallery in 2016. And she's been publishing Phantasmium, a blog that specializes in art with an esoteric or fantastical bent, since 2005. In 2017, she launched Witch Emoji, a witch-themed sticker pack for iMessage that became the number one seller on the App Store. There's no one way to be a witch. No accredited school gives out degrees in witchery, Becoming a witch is an act of inventive discovery and self-creation. Witches find their path as they learn from experience what works best for them. In the process, they are reacquainting us with the richness of the natural world and how to flow in alignment with forces that our materialist culture prefers to ignore. And it seems they're having a lot of fun doing it.
Evolver is the proud parent of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary dedicated to the healing power of plants. At the Alchemist Kitchen, we work with the finest herbalists who are producing high-quality botanical medicines, herbal remedies, and whole plant beauty products. At the Alchemist Kitchen, it's now the season of the witch, a celebration of the feminist, counter-mainstream witch movement. The Alchemist Kitchen believes in the demystification of the witch and sees this archetypal figure as an essential part of our ethos. We see the good witch as integral to this mission. Beyond the natural healer, the witch represents divine femininity, the wild woman, and the mystic. We strive to both defend this energy and encourage people to tap into their inner magic. We invite you to join us this season by attending events at our different locations. Check out our blog, shop at our site, read our Season of the Witch zine, and browse our social media for witch tips and tricks. Today's episode of The Evolver with Pam Grossman is part of a series that includes the inspirational witches Allison Gray, Kim Kranz, and Robin Rose Bennett, and continues soon with the legendary Starhawk. Please check them out. You can learn more at thealchemistskitchen.com there's an S in there. Or stop by our flagship at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan between Bowery and 2nd Avenue. The witch in us celebrates the witch in you. There's a witchy thing going on. Everywhere, it seems. Yes, very much so. Is it a trend? You know, that's a word that I have some resistance to only because I see it more as a movement and I see it as an ascension. The other thing I like to remind people of is witchcraft comes in and out of vogue all the time. And we've seen this happen cyclically. So I don't think what's happening is entirely unique in this moment. I think historically speaking, we've seen these peaks and valleys and um, it's exciting to be part of the peak right now. When was the last peak? The last one I would say was in the 90s when I was a teenager. And a lot of that had to do with pop culture. If you remember the movie The Craft and of course Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Charmed and, and all these pop culture moments were happening that inspired lots of teenagers, especially teen young women like myself, to start dabbling in magic. So that's probably the last one, but we saw it happen with the second wave feminists. We saw it happen with the first wave feminists. You know, this really keeps looping over and over, which makes me believe that it's always there. And just sometimes people tune in and out of paying attention to it. Well, you're a real trend person. You actually know something about trends professionally. So I'll get back to that in a second. Sure. Tell me I'm wrong. But my sense is there's something going on now that's way bigger than it was in the 90s on the witch front. This is not, I mean, I'm going to get it all screwed up, but Sabrina the Teenage Witch. This is something that's deeper in the culture and it's happening. When you say movement, that feels right to me. Mm -hmm. Well, what I think is happening is for a very long time, those of us who are interested in literal witchcraft, you know, we'd have to be pretty careful about who we shared that with. Often it was a very private practice. Most of us when we're growing up and experimenting with this stuff, 
we don't necessarily have access to covens or teachers. A lot of people start off as solitary practitioners. But with the internet, and I know we blame the internet on everything now, but it's true. Suddenly you could, as Timothy Leary famously said, find the others. You could find the other weirdos who were interested in these things too. We appropriated find the others as our podcast tagline. Oh, perfect. Oh, hey, synchronicity. There we go. There you go. So I think that's been a big help, you know, things like Instagram and Tumblr and all of these, you know, places for community. Absolutely, there's negative sides to it. But the positive side is it really helps you find kindred spirits. And I think that empowers other people then to be brave and more out in the open with interests that they thought maybe were a little bit peculiar to begin with. Yeah, well, a lot of the social media stuff that seems to be happening right now tends to be very visual. Yes, there's these kind of witchy visual memes. Yep. I love them. I love What's them. your favorite? You know, my favorite, uh, there is, I say GIF. I know some people say GIF. I can't get down with that. There's a GIF artist named Winona Regan, and she has this great one of these three kind of cartoon witches, like grinding sort of saucily, shall we say, in a graveyard. And it just makes me die laughing. I love it because it has that spirit of tongue-in-cheekness that I think is also part of this rise of witch culture right now. Certainly, there are many of us who are real practitioners like myself who are very sincere. And yet, the witch is also an icon of subversion, the witch, and and I do say she for this archetype, but anyone can be a witch, anyone of any gender. But I, I do default to she, and she is a figure of rebellion. And she is a figure that's anti-patriarchal. She's an anti-authority figure. And so to see people plug into the witch in a really funny way, a tongue-in-cheek way, a political way, even just through the lens of style, I think it's all welcome and it's all valid. Let's talk a little bit about the trend side first, then we get more into the witch stuff. Sure. Your professional background, you were working with Getty Images. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing there? Sure. This was uh, my prior life. I worked there for 14 years. And in the last four of it, I was what's called their director of visual trends. And my job was to study visual culture and figure out what images for the stock photography side of the business we should be creating before all of our customers knew they would need those images. And the customers for Getty Images stock photography is really everybody. It's people who license photos for their ad campaigns, for their billboards, their book covers, you know, their TV shows. We're really surrounded by stock photography all the time. And, you know, you need people to figure out what those images are going to be. And, and that was my my role and my team's role. So you were looking at what kinds of photo shoots to set up. Mm-hmm to project a certain kind of cultural meme, cultural tendencies, seeing what's happening. As a trend watcher, you're seeing what's bubbling up and going, okay, we need more images like that because there's going to be a demand for that. Exactly. And some of it was forecasting. And by the end of my tenure there, some of it also got to be about taking advantage of the wonderful platform that Getty Images had and realizing that we could, in fact, try and influence culture a little bit for the positive. So I started overseeing some projects around repicturing women in less stereotypical ways, in ways that were more empowered. We started projects around 
elevating images of Muslim people. Uh, We partnered with the website Refinery29 to show images of women of fuller bodies and, you know, women from different backgrounds that you don't usually see in fashion campaigns and beauty campaigns. So it became really, really exciting and meaningful for me to feel like we were helping to put, I think, a, a solution out there for the problem of we're surrounded by all these pictures and a lot of them are not very good for us. So how can we create better ones? Well, that's very cool to hear because you generally get the sense that these larger media companies really are so slow on the pickup to make those, make any shift. Yep. And they tend to default to these stereotypical ways of depicting, you know, what it is to be a, you know, essentially healthy quote unquote person society, which is basically like, you know, a well-fed white person. Absolutely. And, and the standards of beauty, the standards of what power is, the standards of what's attractive to us, not just sexually, but what does a leader look like? What does a boss look like? You know, to see images where you're constantly being fed this idea of a, you know, straight white man always being at the head of the table in an image, you know, that's really toxic too, if that's the only image you see of what power or what leadership looks like. So it was really neat to try to come up with alternatives to that visually. So I'm curious what kind of response you got internally to trying to shake these stereotypical images up? Yeah, you know, I was really fortunate. I worked with an amazing team of creatives in the New York office. And and so they were immediately really supportive and excited. There were a lot of women who worked on the creative team. So they got it and were really excited. And, you know, I did report into a number of men. And luckily, they understood pretty quickly that this was important. And they used their power for good too. So yeah, there there wasn't a lot of resistance to it, which is lucky, you know. Is it lucky or is it a sign of the times? That is to say, in certain places, it's not universal, obviously, but in certain places, it does seem like the norms are shifting mm-hmm. and there's an acceptance of it, of the change norms. Obviously, if you look at the country as a whole and who the president is, it's not universal. But some places it's becoming much more kind of taken for granted almost that these things are possible. All somebody needs to do is to push a bit and see if everybody else is ready to go there. I think in creative spaces, um, creative spaces have generally been more quick to adopt, I think, progressive and inclusive values. But I, I would caution us from celebrating and patting ourselves on the back too much. You know, a movie, for example, like Crazy Rich Asians, everyone's really excited about this film, you know, the the first English language film with all Asian people in it that's doing so well. And it's wonderful. So that can seem like, oh, and now this big sea change is happening. But that's just one example. So it's really wonderful to see some companies be more progressive. And certainly we're seeing that in Hollywood start to happen. But there's such a long way to go. There really, really is. So as a trend watcher, you must have noticed some witch stuff going on in the popular culture coming on up. Absolutely. And I think it's tied in with the overall rise of the fourth wave of feminism and the conversation just around inclusivity. And there's so many people who are marginalized in this culture and uh, who are finally, well, I mean, look, 
these these people have always been speaking, but they're finally starting to be heard in a, in a mass scale. And so I tie the ascension of the popularity of the witch into things like Me Too and the Women's March and, you know, Hillary running for president, which we should unpack later when it comes to witches, because there's a lot of interesting stuff that came up during that election. Horrifying things. But all of that said, people, I think, gravitate towards the witch as this icon of rebellious feminine power. So whether or not people are interested in the witch, as I said, because they literally want to practice witchcraft or because they want to adopt the witch as a symbol of rebellion or a symbol of subversion or feminism. To me, it's all part of the same thing. When did you start to notice this trend line kicking in? Of witches? Of witches this time around. I can actually pinpoint it. I wrote an article for Huffington Post wherein I proclaimed that 2013 was the year of the witch. And this was for a whole host of reasons. Uh, One was me being kind of cheeky and playing with the number 13, which is often um, associated with covens and associated certainly with like the 13 moons of the year and the 13 menstrual cycles. And it's it's a number that's been maligned traditionally, just the ways in which female power has traditionally been maligned. But a lot of it too was that I was starting to see witchcraft be celebrated in the space of fashion, in the space of Instagram. A lot of my friends who were secretly kind of practicing witchcraft were starting to be a little bit more out of the broom closet about it. So it really seems like a convergence of a lot of different threads. And you were already a longtime practitioner. Yes, I've been practicing since I was a teenager. And I might even suggest that I was practicing earlier in the same way a lot of kids, I think, practice magic, where you enter that space of deep imaginal play and you do these rituals and you have this really rich interior life um, that feels very real and I would argue is very real. So I was I was always lost in, in that world when I was a kid. Did you think witchy things as a kid? Like, was there the witch, did the witch archetype really call you when you were a child? I really liked witches. I was very into mermaids and fairies and Shira and, you know, those kind of magical 80s cartoons. I don't know if you remember a lot of those, but. I, was, I mean, you can see. I was a little <laughs> old for that at the time, but nonetheless, I have a vague. Yeah. Memory. Well, I grew up with, you know, star fairies and Rainbow Bright and Shira. And I grew up with films like The Dark Crystal and Never Ending Story and Labyrinth. And and honestly, a lot of that fed my way of thinking about magic and creativity as being interrelated. And I like to mention those things because a lot of us get interested in the occult, in magic, in seeking for things that elevate our higher consciousness through pop culture. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I have friends who will talk about like how they got into magic because of Led Zeppelin or, you know, they got into magic because of Dungeons and Dragons. So I think it's all wonderful. It's all portals and and, and keys that help us unlock you know, a door to a bigger realm. Yeah, when you start to poke around, you can see that, you know, quote unquote, spiritual stuff is present in so many different ways. Oh, yeah. Culturally, you can kind of respond to one of those lines or two or three of them. So it could be in the pop culture through that kind, through the through the witchy stuff. Mm-hmm. It, could, 
there's a weird spiritual undercurrent to Marvel superheroes. Oh, definitely. Like some kind of crazy stuff. Jack Kirby was like really tuned in. Oh, for sure. For sure. And then, you know, and then there's also just, you know, if you grow up in a particular kind of, you know, mystical household where there's a, you know, there's a Sufi practice going on or they're doing Kabbalah. It's like it creates the frame where these energies that are present begin to present themselves to you so you can then play with them. Absolutely. And so much of it is through the framework of storytelling. And, you know, that word gets thrown around a lot, but I think it's such a crucial one regarding the ways in which we tell ourselves who we are and what the purpose of life is. And for me, art was such an important and still is such an important ingredient to my own magical practice. I was very fortunate as a kid, I was raised by two really artistic, awesome human beings, uh, my parents. And and we would come into New York City. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, so we didn't live too far away. And we go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is packed with magic and images of goddesses and, you know, all You saw this. that as a kid? You oh, saw, yeah. What, what, what were the magic images that really hit you when you were that? Oh, my First goodness. going in. I mean, I remember seeing a piece by the artist Kiki Smith. Um, it's a piece she called Lilith. Uh, and I would love to talk more about Lilith. And I don't know if you remember this piece. I don't know if it's still hanging now, but it's a full-size sculpture of a woman and she has these very realistic eyes, but she's on the wall. She's sort of like curled if I'm remembering kind of fetal position E on the wall, and it's very creepy and magical. And I loved this piece. I've also always loved their Diana sculpture, you know, Artemis or Diana. The, it's it's one of their big icons, which is in the American wing. And and when I go there now, I always have to visit her. I always have to, you know, hail Diana. She, and it's, it's really, you know, a shrine for me where I can plug in and, and really feel like I'm connecting to that, that lunar energy. Was there a point as you were growing up where, you know, for many of us, the kid connection to these kind of playful realms starts to fade. Mm-hmm. And then you, you start to go, well, you know, man, I, I'm kind of old for this now. What am I going to do? You know, there's the more serious stuff that's waiting for me. I'm going right. to go there, right? Mm-hmm. But you held on to the witch yep. material. Yep. Was there a moment where you decided to do that deliberately? Gosh, I wish I could say yes, but it just really never left me. It took a lot of different shapes. So again, when I was growing up in the 90s, I was really into music. I still am. And Tori Amos, PJ Harvey, Bjork, like all these really, if you think about it, quite witchy, magical, creative women were part of my personal identity because for the first time, it seemed like these adults who were really cool and really creative were validating the things I was interested in because they all sing about, you know, witchy, magical, goddessy kind of things and archetypes and and female sexuality. So I was really fortunate in that I was able to find it in ways that still felt kind of cool and relevant to whatever age I was in. It's not like it felt childish to me because I I found the teen version of it. And then when I got older, you know, and I I was getting a little more scholarly and going to college, I got into Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. Like whatever level I was at, I was able to find magic that spoke to me, if that makes sense. 
totally makes sense. Was there a time where the engagement with witchery opened up something for you in a spiritual way that surprised you, where you went, oh, there's more here. Like people will have that experience, say, through their meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, oh, wait a minute. Why am I seeing that white light when I close my eyes? Mm-hmm. Right? In a yoga practice, there's like kundalini work yeah, starts to kick in. For sure. Like there, in every one of these kind of mystical byways, mm-hmm. there are opportunities for the veil to be pierced. Yes. And I'm wondering if in witchery, you had something like that happen for you. I've had it a number of times. And for me, it was often in the context of doing a spell that really would work. And I say this a lot. I'm a pragmatic witch and a pragmatic person. If this didn't work, I wouldn't bother. You know what I mean? This works for whatever reasons. And, you know, I've done, you know, at this point, many, many spells, but there were a few spells I did when I was younger that worked so well, some of which scared me and others of which really lit a fire within me in a a really positive way. So I'll tell you two examples of this, a negative example. And this is why I do not do any hexing. I do not do any kind of negative attack style magic is when I was first experimenting with this. And uh, I should say that I I write about this in, in a book that I have coming out next year. But there was this girl in eighth grade that I did not like. She was she was really mean. She was dating the boy that I was in love with. She was, you know, she was a really twitty asshole of a, of a girl. Let's hope she's grown up and she's gone on to, you know, save lives in Botswana. But she was a jerk back then. And I did some magic against her, some really negative magic where I I wanted some harm to befall her because she just represented a lot of pain for me. So I did this spell that was based on a very old uh, spell that I found in a book and I didn't have all the ingredients. I had to improvise. I did not have the bladder of a chicken, for example. I did have a Ziploc bag, you know. So, and magic, you know, it, it actually, um, and we can talk about this a little bit, it, it is fine with you improvising and you do, you do not have to stick to everything um, like, like a cookbook. But anyhow... I did this spell and the next day she came into school and she was covered in boils. And what had happened is she had laid out in the sun, you know, she was tanning and got sun blisters all over her body. Now we can say that was just a coincidence and maybe it was. I I don't, I, I don't have all the answers, but it felt to me like I had caused harm to this person And I felt terrified and guilty about this. And it really taught me a lesson of, you know, be careful playing with this stuff. We don't fully understand it. And even if it was just a coincidence, just to teach me a lesson, it was one I really, really took to heart. Intention is very powerful. Oh, yeah. It's everything. And spells have a way of giving you tools to focus and project your intention. Absolutely. Had you been doing a good number of spells before that one? Yeah, I'd been doing some, 
little, you know, love spells and things like that. Honestly, I was a teenager. That's mostly what I was doing was like, I love this person. I don't like this person. Can I have help with this, you know, specific, I don't know, math test or whatever the heck. Was there like a teenage witch spell book that you were, I'm just curious, like how this was happening for you in middle school? You know, um, do not underestimate the power of the new age section of a mall bookstore. You know, there was Walden Books and uh, B. Dalton. Those were the bookshops that were big in the malls when I was growing up. And they had little spell books that you could buy. Um, I also had a few special new age shops that I would make pilgrimages to. And my parents were very indulgent and they would take me to these metaphysical shops, which made me want to be a metaphysician when I grew up. I did not know that that was not really a thing. (laughs) That's Uh, a career path. Oh my God. Professional metaphysician. No parent would be unhappy when they their kid is going to get their PhD in metaphysicianing. Exactly. (laughs) But, um, so yeah, so, so, and I found all kinds of spell books that I would play with. And I was also, and still am, you know, a writer and I was a painter and a really creative kid. And I channeled a lot of my angst into my artwork. And and that was really transformational to me. And then I started kind of realizing they were two sides of the same coin. So you had a more positive spell experience, you're going to tell us. Yes. I'll tell you a more recent one. I was a solitary practitioner for most of my life. And then when I was in my mid-20s and I was working in New York City, working for Getty Images and getting a lot deeper into my practice, I just really felt like I wanted to find my people and and I wanted to learn from someone who knew more than me, not just in a book, but an actual elder. And I didn't know how to find these people. I remember Googling and like searching for local covens. And then I was like, but how do you join a coven? How do you find these people? It, It actually feels kind of intimidating when you don't know where to begin. And so I did a spell to ask uh, spirit to guide me to a teacher and to a community. And I did this really beautiful spell in Prospect Park by a waterfall that I go to uh, for some really special magic and and, uh, touching into spirit when I need it. And the very next day, I was actually wandering around not far from this neighborhood where we are now. In Soho. Yep. And this is when the Open Center was still in Soho. And and for listeners who don't know what that is, the Open Center is one of the oldest centers in New York City for consciousness classes. So you could, you know, take classes in Reiki or, you know, acupuncture or herbalism, whatever it is. And um, so I was wandering around and I stumbled into this place called the Open Center and there was a bookshop there. I don't know if you remember this. I remember it well on Spring Street. Sure, exactly. And I asked the gentleman who worked there at the time, do you have any spells or any, excuse me, any books on witchcraft? And he said, you know, we don't like to call it that here, but I'll tell you what. Our herbalism section, you will find books by a woman who is definitely a witch and she teaches classes here and she does not use the word witch in our catalog and you would never know, but I am telling you she is a witch. Who was that? That is the amazing Robin Rose Bennett. Whose podcast we released this morning. (gasps) (laughs) Oh, the 
brings tears to my eyes. I love her so much. And she is wonderful. She changed my life. She changed my life. Yeah, I started taking classes with her. And I have to say, I wasn't that interested in herbalism. Like it really was just like, okay, this is the message I'm getting. I better listen to this message. For those of you who may have the good fortune to take a class with Robin or anyone else in the quote-unquote green witch community, you are learning extremely practical things. You know, which herbs will help with blood sugar, which herbs will help with cancer. You, you're learning these physiological things. But as we know, there's an energetic component to plants. There's consciousness to plants. No one knows that better than you can with all the work that you've been doing uh, with the Alchemist's Kitchen here in New York. And so I started taking these classes and very quickly realized that the way in which she was teaching, she was threading these really magical lessons into the classes as well. And the whole way she was approaching the planet really was one of this elevated consciousness that really celebrated the divine feminine. Robin clearly a witch. Oh, yeah. But a different kind of witch mm-hmm. than black pointed hat, oh, of broomstick, course. Yeah. toil, toil, boil in trouble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the covens that I'm vaguely aware of uh-huh. have a tendency to, to see the witchiness through this rather transgressive, darker shadow material alongside the wonder that's possible when you can connect to these forces that you can bring in through spells, that you can bring in through your practice. Keep going, keep going, yes. I'm curious where you find yourself with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I would say this, and Robin, I think, would say this too, though I, I don't want to put words into her mouth, but a lot of the goddesses, for example, that are meaningful to me and that I have a relationship with and that I believe Robin does too, are not only about light and sunshine and flowers. That's part of it. But if you're going to celebrate nature, you need to embrace it in all of its cycles. That includes winter, that includes darkness, that includes nighttime, that includes shadow. And I think to become a fully integrated human being, embracing shadow. I mean, we could just talk about this psychologically. Jung would say you have to embrace your shadow side in order to be fully integrated and fully balanced. And so I think a lot of women and marginalized people are embracing the shadowy side of the archetype um, in a way to heal and to protect themselves and to celebrate the dark parts of them that have been oppressed or that they have been made to feel ashamed of for so much of their lives. And so I actually see it as all being part of the same thing. I think darkness is certainly an important part of the witch archetype, but I think it's an important side for everybody to get to celebrate and honor. Absolutely. The dark sometimes is what can pull people into the practices that can lead them to the light. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely right. That's really beautifully said. Because you're working with this stuff that's so, like dark material is the stuff that's closer to the surface for many people, Mm -hmm. for all of us at some point or another. Yes. And that's like this like bell that that, that rings that you hear and you go like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And 
especially in our culture where there's so much oppression of the feminine, mm-hmm. the opportunity to kick against that oppression in a way that's you know clearly transgressive can be so empowering. Oh yeah, especially you know as a woman when you're taught to always be smiling, to always be nice, to say thank you even though you literally are being given what is it 80% of what most men are being given in your paycheck or you're not being given the right to have agency over your own body or decide when or if you're going to have children or how. I mean, these are really big rights that a lot of women don't have and a lot of marginalized people don't have. And so I think people plug into the witch also in the same way that people plug into, you know, that phrase nasty woman that got reappropriated and reclaimed during the election. It's because a lot of us are sick of being told that we don't matter, that we don't count, that even though we're more vulnerable, that we don't have the same amount of worth. And so the witch also, I think, is an icon of um, self-protection and self-sovereignty in a world that would have us be quiet and um, that would punish us. We have a sticker at the Alchemist Kitchen that's been really popular It says in this kind of interesting kind of gothic print, Yeah, I'm a motherfucking witch. (laughs) All the women in our staff have it on their laptop. Yeah, yeah. It's attitudinal. Yeah. But what also interests me about the witchy kind of archetype is the way that it works with magic to call in the thing you desire. Mm. That it's, that I think for a lot of people, when they start to get into this territory and they start to open up through that door, through that witch door, they're going, hey, like you did when you were in eighth grade. I want that. Mm. (laughs) How am I going to get that? Okay, so I'm going to do a sigil. I'm going to call in this being. I'm going to do these practices. Mm -hmm. And yo, I'm going to manifest. I'm empowered. I can manifest. Manifesting is big, yeah. It's a big deal. Yep. But my question always is when I come back to this stuff, and this is just because I'm a dork, I guess, (laughs) is that at a certain level, when your desire is pushing you to manifest, you don't necessarily even know what it is that's in your best interest. Mm -hmm. Unconscious forces, unconscious tendencies have a way of driving you towards things that may not necessarily be what you really need. Yep. So then you can get into all kinds of bizarre and not necessarily, you know, ideal situations. Oh, be careful what you witch for, you know? <laughs> and that's exactly why I don't actually do many specific manifestations anymore. Like when I was a kid, I would be like, to your point, I want that. I want that boy. So let me try to do a love spell to attract that boy to me, right? Now, anytime anyone wants a love spell, I have them do a self-love spell. And I know that that seems very squishy-mushy, but I actually think it's the only way forward, um, which is to work on empowering yourself and healing yourself. And the second thing I'll say is that I will do magic that's focused on an intention, but not necessarily focused on an outcome. So I will say, for example, I'm writing this book, you know, sure, would I love this book to be a bestseller and, you know, all this stuff? That'd be awesome. 
hopefully, probably. But on the other hand, I'm really focusing on just trying to make it the best book I can and trying to, I want this book to be in service to something greater than me or greater than it. That's what I try to tell people who come to me when they're doing magic is to focus on a greater intention. So I'm very happy, for example, to help friends if they're trying to get a job or whatever, but I would rather have them do a spell. And I I tell them this, which is please help me find the best job where I can be of service in the best possible way. You don't know that that's going to be the job. You could, you know, try to get that specific job and it's miserable. So yeah, I focus on intention and not outcome almost always with my spells. A couple of things. Mm -hmm. First, what's beautiful about this is the recognition that everybody can do this. Oh, very much so that you don't need to go to someone else who has quote-unquote power, that you're holding this connection to divine energy and you can call stuff to you. Yes. And that's your responsibility. Yep. But it's also your extraordinary opportunity. And if I can interject, that is one of the reasons to get back to your first question or an earlier question, why is this so popular? I think because it's for everybody, you don't need... There's not one set of rules. It's it's a decentralized practice. No one owns it. You don't have to go to like the Pope of witchcraft to be, you know, blessed or to do a working for you. You can do it yourself. You don't need a mediator. I recommend people learn and, you know, educate themselves. But of course, there are many, many paths and many styles to witchcraft. And so I think that's really appealing to people. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com And the second thing I was thinking is, here's in my very flat-footed way why I think calling in a really narrow objective is a bad idea. Because if it's not in alignment with, let's just call it your higher self, Mm -hmm. then in order to achieve that thing that you really desire, other kinds of energies get called into the mix. Energies meaning, I'll just put it out there, lower vibrational spiritual energies. Mm, Ego. Your ego starts asking for things. And the stuff that works with your ego Mm -hmm. that is maybe, you know, not friendly, Mm -hmm. ultimately, Mm -hmm. that you can work with Mm -hmm. and maybe that's helping you for a while. But at the end of the day, that stuff can come back and bite you in the ass. Sure. When people open up to this territory, there's so little cultural knowledge that's widespread now about how to work with this stuff, that folks can, unbeknownst to themselves, kind of step into stuff, into territory that can actually end up really, literally destabilizing them and throwing them Mm -hmm. into 
in, in, it's in this uncharted territory that's sure. not really to the benefit. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. I think it's interesting because there are a lot of schools of thought and I have a couple of very dear friends who are all about being as specific as possible and using the power of your mind to envision exactly what you want and manifesting those things. And we've had discussions around that where I'm like, how do you know that that thing you exactly want is what's right? And and my friends have said, because I trust myself and this is the image that's coming to me. And, and, and look, I can't say that they're wrong and I'm right or, you know, I think we all just have to kind of figure it out and whatever works is great. I just know that for me, I'd rather have a more trusting and expansive point of view. And, you know, I love the idea that even my greatest dream for myself is smaller than what spirit might be able to dream for me. But I I completely understand other folks who are like, no, I want to go after exactly what I want. And the more I focus on it, the more likely that's going to happen. And frankly, I'm an ambitious person. And, and I have had to hold really clear pictures of, of the next goal that I'm trying to achieve for myself. And, and I think that's an important part of, of forward motion too. So I think the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Well, honestly, I have never been able to envision as big a thing out there as what ends up coming to me when I allow, let's call it spirit, yeah. to present what's really coming through that I didn't see coming. Yeah. And it's kind of learning more and more about how I got to get out of the way. Yes. And surrender and pay attention to the stuff when it does show up. And that's happened to me so many times at this point that I'm completely bought in. And it shows up in a different form than you might have expected. I mean, it really does. You have to be able to read the signs and trust that things take different shapes than you might first picture. Right. But then the trick is learning how to pay attention, which is where something like meditation becomes really valuable. Also, for some of us working with psychedelics or plant medicine, Mm -hmm. which has a way of tuning your perceptive your antenna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that part of your practice too? Oh, do you know what? And and we should talk about this. So I cannot do marijuana. It just does not agree with me. I've had horrible experiences, like some of the worst experiences of my whole life on pot alone. And the... I'm sorry. And the one... It just doesn't agree with me. And the one time... I went on this whole literary journey, if you will, of reading a lot about psychedelics. And, I'll, you know, I read all the books one would read about these things. And I was like, oh, this is definitely for me. I want to do it. And I asked all the people I knew in my life who I thought would be able to connect me. There, I had no leads. There was just no way for me to get this stuff. I was like, I don't live in New York City. I have a lot of weird friends. Just no one had anything. This is how the universe talks That's to you. That's what I'm saying. And then I finally tried mushrooms. I went to New Orleans to be with my best friend. We did this beautiful ritual. This was for, I can't remember if it was like summer solstice or something like that. We were going to do it as like a sacrament magic. We take these mushrooms. Nothing, nothing happened. Ha! I ate plenty of them too. 
And I'm just like, this is not for me. And let me tell you something else. I'm extremely sensitive to chemicals. I can barely drink. I get drunk really quickly and it really affects me. I told you the marijuana thing. I eat chocolate and I, I'm like buzzing. I can't drink coffee. How about herbal remedies? Like do you use I'm, Oh, I'm plants? very herbal. I'm extremely herbal. You respond to chamomile. Oh, very much so. Okay, yeah, right. And like, so that's and I drink green tea, uh-huh, but yeah. like, so every morning or yerba mate, but I just, the, these things, when I was really seeking them, they weren't looking for me. And hey, maybe, you know, things will change, but it just was not meant to be for most of my life. And I'm so sensitive. I wonder, maybe I don't need it. Maybe it's not right for me. You know, I, I have, you know, tendencies, um, that I have to keep in check, you know, chemical stuff. I, you know, I have anxiety issues that can sometimes kick in. I'm like, maybe this wouldn't agree with my anxiety. Oh, the look on your face, Ken. <gasps> You're just like, no, you must take this. No, no, no. I'm exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. No, let me tell you. What okay. I, I'm just okay. getting anxious because I know I'm, getting, I'm not, I'm, I'm not very, anxious. I'm not very on brand right now. No, not at all. This is perfect. <laughs> For you. It is perfect because actually what I, I wanted to say this thing, which is to say, that the first time I actually took ayahuasca with a shaman, yeah. I had nothing happen. <gasps> and in fact... I didn't even know that was a thing. Oh, no, this is a thing. That's what I'm trying to say. So, in fact, I had a 30-second experience just after, maybe a half an hour after I drank, yeah. where I visualized a snake yeah. moving up inside of my body looking around, checking things out, checking these out, coming uh-huh. from my like my 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 lower chakras, sure. moving up to my chest, looking around my neck, getting up to my head, looking inside uh-huh. my head my head and going, oh no, we don't think you're ready for this. This is uh-huh. not the right time. This is uh-huh. not the right time to do this. Uh-huh. Goodbye. Yeah. Nothing happened. Zero. The presence of that snake blew my mind. Well, and that's a something. It was a something. And I was a total secular materialist who had no interest in any of this stuff at that point. And I really didn't want to be at that shamanic ceremony that night. I was doing it as a favor to a friend. (laughs) I'll take drugs as a favor to you. I'm a good friend. (laughs) But I was not really into it. (gasps) Yeah. That experience stuck with me like, oh my God. Then I spent the rest of the night you know, vomiting in the bathroom because, of course, I had done no dieta and I had all kinds of miserable crap in my yeah, system. Yeah, and yeah, I hadn't, yeah. You know, I probably was just eating like a ton of cheese in the morning. <laughs> oh, so, no. But, you know, so and I went through that. But no psychedelic effect. Right. No visionary right, anything. Right. It wasn't time. Yep. There is an intentionality on the part of that energy to work with us in a certain way. Yeah. It'll let it, It'll let you know when it's time, if it's time. And everybody is coming to this same kind of territory through their own path. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's what I've... I've come to the conclusion that it certainly wasn't time then. I'm not saying never. But honestly, I haven't felt like I've needed it. I've had such wild and rich experiences without it that I'm like, maybe I'm fine. You know, so so who knows? Who knows? So you left your job. Yes. You're smiling. I am. I am. Nothing against any (laughs) people at Getty Images. I'm sure they're wonderful people. Are you kidding me? I met the love of my life there, who's now my husband. I 
met incredible human beings there who I'm still working with. And now my witch capacity, my full pro witch capacity, I should say. So, you know, don't knock a day job. I think there's a lot of wisdom and great connections and great teachings that come with day jobs, but it was really time for me to go. So what are you doing now? I am writing my book. As I said, I have a podcast called The Witch Wave, and that's been growing really quickly. And and there's a lot of momentum around that. And then I've been doing all kinds of consulting and speaking in the space of, of witchery. So You're consulting as a witch? Yes. How does that work? So um, I'm not able to mention anything yet, but... For example, when people are making films about witchcraft and they need someone to make sure they are doing it either accurately or at least not offensively, they need people who know how to do a spell and they need people to advise them. So I've been doing that kind of consulting behind the scenes and and that's been really fun. Oh yeah, because I'm such a film buff that to be able to like feel like I have a tiny, tiny bit of influence on, on something is really exciting. What's your favorite witch film? Oh, Ken, I could talk about that all day. I have like 10 that are coming to mind. The one that's popping in my head, it's a film that's now called, well, it's had a lot of different names. It's now called, I believe, Season of the Witch. At one point, it was called Jack's Wife. There was another name for it. And it's a George Romero film. It's about this kind of oppressed, I think it's either in the late 1960s or early 1970s, She's a housewife. She has a kind of abusive husband and she starts dabbling in the dark arts and it just makes her come alive in these feminist transgressive ways. So that's definitely one of them for sure. And not a lot of people know it and you should totally watch it. It's, you know, it's a little bit campy, which I'm a sucker for, but it's really cool and it's really ahead of its time. Let's talk about witches and the feminine. Why? (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to interpret that question how I want to, Ken. Uh, (laughs) Why are witches associated with the feminine? Because at least for many hundreds of years, when generally straight dudes have been in control, the witch has represented the opposite of that. And let's keep in mind that the archetype of the witch is really multifaceted. And so, and it's a very old archetype. It's one that's been in fairy tales. It's one in mythology. There were, and still are, you know, people who literally practiced all kinds of spirituality, divination, witchcraft, magic, by any name you choose to call it. But the image of the witch that we all picture when it comes to like the Halloween witch or the scary, really evil satanic witch, that really comes out of primarily the 15th through 17th century at the time of the witch hunts, uh, which happened in Europe and later in the New England colonies. And everyone's familiar with the Salem witch trials. And that image is an image that was authored by men. It was authored by the church Certainly, they were blending together older tales of scary women who would, you know, turn into owls and fly into your bedroom at night and kill babies. And and that actually goes back to Lilith, who came up earlier, um, because a lot of it's associated to beliefs about Lilith and some earlier Mesopotamian demons. 
But the short version is, you know, this idea that it's a demonic being is straight out of the church. And you would have these Dominican and Franciscan friars who were going from town to town telling people to be terrified of these witchy, satanic women who were in league with the devil. And that obviously got under people's skin and they started accusing people, as we know, accusing each other of being actual practicing witches and and many thousands of people died because of it, mostly women. They estimate about 75 to 80% of all the people who were accused and put to death were women. And that continues to this day. So, but but that I see as the way that men, as part of a repression of the feminine at a time when the culture was becoming both much more church-based, but also much more materialist. Yes. Right? Yes. And less connected to the cycles of nature. Yep. We're projecting an idea of what a dangerous witch is yep. onto women, yep. largely, yep. who they feared. Oh, 100%. And often the imagery that will accompany a lot of the witchcraft books and witchcraft treatises that were written at the time, the women were either very sexy and deadly or very old and hideous and deadly. So it's like you can't win as a lady unless you are pretty much pregnant. Like if you're a pregnant lady, everybody loves you. Otherwise, you know, you're you're something to be afraid of. And uh, have we come that far from that today, Ken? I mean, that's debatable. You know, the, the limitations on what's acceptable to be as a woman, you know, we do this now. You're either too prude or you're too slutty. You're either too meek and invisible or you're too bossy and bitchy, right? We we have these binaries that we still bind women into. And the witch really is a way, I think, that has been projected onto women and that is now being reclaimed by women and, and other marginalized people. What I'm wondering yes. is whether, aside from the projection that's coming from, let's say, oppressive forces, there's also something specifically feminine about the witchy practice. Mm -hmm. People practice in a lot of different ways, let's be clear. But a lot of us who practice are practicing in a way that honors the cycles of nature, the cycles of our bodies, the cycles of the moon, um, the seasons. And so to your point, Ken, that is, I suppose you could say it's a more feminine way of looking at the world if we're going to be binary about things. Absolutely. I think that's that's a fair point. It's interesting because I often think, you know, the way we treat witches is the way we treat women in general. And the, the things we project onto witches are the things we project onto women in general. So it's very heartening to see the witch being reclaimed. And that's only been happening, in, you know, since the mid-19th century or so. Witches were always evil before the mid-19th century. I, I, you know, there's there's a few exceptions. Baba Yaga in Slavic folklore is, is ambiguous. She's sometimes negative, sometimes positive. There, there's a few exceptions. But generally speaking, the archetype of the witch was always about malevolent magic. And once the mid-19th century was kicking in and you had writers like Jean Michelet who wrote a book called La Sorciere where he reframed these women who were being killed as witches as actually these magical, heroic, beautiful, you know, entities that, to your point, were connected to nature and, and he was really romanticizing women. Then other people started picking up on that. 
This is a really one of my favorite little factoids. So someone who really liked his book is an American feminist, an early feminist named Matilda Jocelyn Gage. She was a suffragist. She was a theosophist, an abolitionist, just a really cool ahead of her time woman. She wrote a book called Woman, Church, and State, where she talks about the witch as an oppressed female. And she, in her mind, and she, she was not necessarily right about this, but in her mind, the most brilliant female minds of their age were killed because they were a threat to the church. So anyway, she's a feminist. She goes on to have a daughter who marries a man named L. Frank Baum, who writes The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And they, he's very close to her. And she influences him a lot, and he becomes a theosophist, as does his wife. And he puts the idea of good witches and bad witches into pop culture. And so it's this really incredible lineage. And that's why, to an earlier point, you know, pop culture and fact and fiction, it's all swirled together when it comes to witches and when it comes to consciousness. So there was no concept of the good witch before The Wizard of Oz? Well, I as mean, I in, said, in, in, the... in pop culture, he he was certainly one of the earliest and definitely the most popular. So, you know, like I said, he got that idea from his mother-in-law who got it from this French writer. And that was coming from like new scholarship that was happening around the, the witch hunts in Europe. So, you know, there's a lineage of this. And look, we can argue a lot of the goddesses that were associated with witchcraft. I mean, Hecate is a really good one. She's one of my favorite goddesses. You know, she's good and she's also terrifying. She's both of these things. So this idea of there being this ambiguity when it comes to magical women has been with us forever. But when we're thinking really about like the stereotypical image of the witch, there really weren't very many positive versions before the mid-19th century. And The Wizard of Oz was really one of the reasons, you know, he wrote it right in the year 1900. So at the turn of the century, that really helped amplify it. And the MGM film of 1939, of course, then shot it into our, our bloodstream. So yeah, and, and we know all the good witches that came after that. Where did the pointed hat come from? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because it was such a pain in the ass to figure it out. And there's still not a great answer. There are so many theories on this. The best answer that I've been able to find out uh, from the scholar Ronald Hutton, who's an incredible scholar about witches, is that it was kind of just like a popular riding outfit for working class people in like the the English and Welsh area in the, I want to say, 17th century or so. And, and so what would happen is when illustrators were creating images of like weird old women, they would design it with this old-fashioned, like it was old-fashioned at the time kind of image. So that's the, the most viable working theory. But if you actually look throughout time, a pointed hat shows up over and over again. There's something called the Judenhut, which Jewish people had to wear to, this was in medieval times, to show that they were Jewish. And of course, they've been very oppressed. And there were like a French hat, I might be mispronouncing this, called capuchon, which is a pointed hat. And there's a theory that that was just the fashion of the time, but some people thought it was associated with devilishness. So there's really, and that's a really good example of how it's very hard to pin down a clean, crisp history of the witch because it's always this nebulous, shape-shifting, part fact, part fiction character. And I think that's what makes her so powerful too. 
Do you make a distinction when you talk about, when you think about witches Mm -hmm. and the lineage of witches Mm -hmm. between the Western pagan work line and let's say indigenous grandmother practices Mm -hmm. in shamanic lineages? Mm -hmm. So for the purposes of the book, and I try to make this clear, I am talking about that like Western stereotype, like where did that image come from and and why are we all plugging into it? But of course, a lot of it comes from these indigenous shamanic practices and histories of, you know, divination and fortune telling and healing and energy work and all of this stuff that I think is in every culture. So... It really depends on the context and how I'm talking about it, but I see them as certainly related. And we're having some very interesting things happen where, you know, right now, um, brujeria or, you know, the the Spanish word for witch, as some listeners may know, is, is the word bruja. So we're having people who were raised with all kinds of traditions from the African diaspora, you know, whether it's Santeria or different Yoruba practices or whatever it may be, Voodoo, whatever it is. And they are calling themselves witches and brujas to reconnect with their traditions and their ancestors. And, and that's part of this culture too and this conversation too. And, you know, I think it's an important one to bring up because even in the the conversation around witchcraft, we have to make sure that it's not always white and it's not just white feminist ladies then reappropriating these indigenous practices or these African diaspora practices in ways that can be really offensive and painful to people who grew up with those traditions. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. It's interesting because then the term witch ends up getting essentially appropriated and used to apply to all of these local practices mm-hmm. that were specific to their cultures, to their locales. Yeah, yeah. And it becomes a single term that you would use for the whole thing in the same way that shaman, which was essentially originally as a, a term that was used only for an indigenous group in Siberia, yeah. became the global term to apply to all forms of a certain kind of essentially medicine man. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So the witch, it's it's like we're now actually creating a new global culture of the witch by weaving together these different kinds of previously separate practices by seeing their commonalities. I think that's part of what's happening, you know, and certainly even in within the witchcraft community here in the States, you have some people who are like really into astrology and tarot and crystals and they're calling themselves witches. And then you have other people who do like more quote unquote traditional witchcraft. And that's a term we can unpack all day. Traditional. What is that really? But who do that style, you know, really spell casting or what have you, who think like those ladies over there are just doing like the popular, you know, witch light Instagram version of witchcraft. You know, there's all these, um, the, the semantics of it are, are really interesting and kind of hilarious in, in some contexts. But the fact of the matter is that the word witch really is elastic and it's expanding and I think applicable to a lot of different practices to your point. But some people might argue with that. You know, this is not a universal, I think, definition. I think it really shifts depending on who's using it and how. And it's important to bring up, Ken, we're in a really privileged place. I mean, certainly 
it, I don't think it's ever 100% safe to identify as a witch. It's still a word that's very charged and that brings up a lot of emotion and fear in a lot of people. But I am relatively safe compared to people in Papua New Guinea and in Saudi Arabia and in India and Sub-Saharan Africa, where people are accusing other people of being witches, usually women. And those people are getting severely brutalized and murdered. This is happening all over the world still. So I, I, I am careful about generalizing too much. Like, yes, it's wonderful that the word witch is being reclaimed right now by feminists and by people who are really interested in social justice issues and environmental issues and in protecting the vulnerable and reclaiming their power. But let's know that that's a really also lucky and privileged position to be able to take. When did you come out as a witch? Well, I always felt this way about myself, but I started publicly calling myself a witch maybe about, gosh, 12 years ago or so. Um, I was doing these events at a space called Observatory that I was helping run with seven or eight of my friends. It was this really neat little art space that we ran for five years. In and Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, in Gowanus. I remember um, it well before it was filled with artisanal ice cream shops. Not that I don't like artisanal ice cream, but just saying. And, you know, we would curate art shows and lecturers and classes. And and I started not just curating them anymore, but I started teaching classes in witchcraft. And I started lecturing about the history of the witch in art and, you know, the occult history of modern art and all these things. And, and that's when I began to be more public about it. When did you find people were most interested in it as classes in witchery? Like, what was the thing that you found like, oh, whoa, people want to come and learn about this? Literally anything. There was such a hunger for people to learn how to do magic and how to connect with this archetype. And what's interesting is on my podcast, you know, I have a lot of guests and some of them are practitioners and some of them identify as witches and some of them just work in the space of, of witches, you know, with their writing or, or filmmaking or what have you. But uh, one segment in every show is I take a, a question from, you know, people write to me all the time asking me questions. And I can't tell you how many people ask me like, how do I do this? How do I start? What book should I read? You know, they they really want me to tell them like how to be a witch, how to start. Is and there a kit? Can you get a kit? Exactly. Well, Sephora tried to sell one for a while. That didn't go so well. That got nipped in the bud. I don't know if you followed that whole story. No, what happened? Oh yeah, there was a, a witchcraft kit that Sephora was going to be selling. And I, I'm trying to remember what was in it. I think it was like tarot cards and like maybe magical makeup and maybe some kind of like a sage bundle or something, which is problematic for a whole host of reasons. And a lot of practicing witches were so offended that Sephora stopped carrying this or, 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 or you know, halted their plans to carry it. And it's kind of funny because you can buy tarot cards at Urban Outfitters and you can buy witchcraft books at Target. I mean, but for some reason, this really bugged the witch community. So, you know, this has been in the zeitgeist for a while, and I think it will continue to be, and it's going to continue to take different shapes. But to get back to your question, I think people just want to know, like, how do I do this? And and I always tell them, look, I can tell you some books that I really liked. I can give you some little tips, but it really is better if you figure it out yourself, because that's what 
I had to do. Like it was just about trusting whatever book was calling to you. And, and I think what people really want is to be told like, you got this, like you can figure this out yourself and whatever you're called to explore is the right path for you. That's what's so amazing about witchcraft. And I think alternative spirituality in general, no one hands you the book, no one hands you the rules. You know, you do have to trust your intuition and you have to trust what calls to you and explore it. And and that will lead you to other books and other teachers and it will lead you to your community, but just trust whatever path is opening itself up to you. Before we go, Yes. I want to come back to Hillary. Okay. <laughs> oh, Hillary. Gosh. Hillary the witch. Must we? No, I brought it up. It was it was on me. Well, one of the things that's really interesting is the ways in which across the aisle, women, especially political women, are called witches and are made into witches via Photoshop. Like literally, you can you can Google. Condoleezza Rice, you can Google Michelle Bachman, you can Google Hillary, and you will find witch after witch after witch. Sarah Palin, like no matter who it is, they will be turned into a witch online. And it's really incredible to me that this still is such a negative epithet. It's a way that we shame women, especially women who seek power or seek to be public or to be leaders. You know, we want to diminish them and shame them. And so by painting them as a witch, that's one way that we do it. And, you know, it get it gets back to that phrase, nasty woman, that was thrown at her. And I loved seeing the ways that that was reappropriated and that you have all these, like, feminist resistance ladies calling themselves nasty women now. And But Hillary in particular, if you Google Hillary witch, you will see, like, millions of, of search results. It's really wild. How many of them are Russian? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> at least 50%. No, I, but but it, it's really it's really wild and and there was even a campaign to counteract this by trying to reframe her as a witch but as Hermione because Hermione in Harry Potter was very studious and yes, they called her bossy at first, but in fact she was just you know, she was going to save the day and she did in a lot of cases. And it was like, Hillary, lean into the witch thing. Just tell them you are a witch, but you're Hermione. And I, I just, I just, I love that. I loved seeing the way in which this archetype was applied, even at, you know, the highest levels of discourse. And I don't know if we have time to get into witch hunt, but we <laughs> definitely have somebody in office right now who thinks that he is the target of one. There's a Twitter account I follow where they follow uh, or excuse me, they tweet every time he uses the phrase and he's well into the hundreds just for the year 2018 alone. It's pretty wild. So, so what does that mean that he uses that That he phrase, thinks he's the target of a witch That he's the target hunt. of a feminine paradigm I don't think he phrase. thinks about that that deeply. I think he's very much using it in the same way that, you know, Richard Nixon allegedly said that he thought he was being targeted. He's, he didn't say this publicly, but apparently he told some folks in the White House he thought he was being targeted and, and that the whole Watergate thing was a witch hunt. So we've seen that phrase bandied about a lot since 
you know, it, it was actually popularized b- before McCarthyism, but McCarthyism definitely put it into the into the vernacular. And thanks to Arthur Miller and the Crucible, of course, which really drew the parallels between Salem and, you know, falsely accusing people and scapegoating people in all kinds of ways. But to me, it's the height of irony that you have this white, straight, wealthy, privileged, powerful Christian man who is using this terminology without a hint of irony. I mean, it's just, if if you tease out all of the ways in which it is ironic and ridiculous, you know, we'd be here all day. You don't hear the word healing alongside the word witch very often. You're not hanging out with the right people, Ken. Well, with Robin, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a certain with the green witch thing, yeah. But when you think about the popular cultured notion of witch, often what's forward is that darker thing, that desire thing. Healing is obviously a, a huge piece of what's going on in this sort of consciousness culture. And I'm wondering how you're seeing that with playing with the witch movement. Yeah, I would offer a, count, uh, a, a counterpoint to that, actually, Ken, because... There's a lot of conversation in the witchcraft community as within the larger community as we're talking about all of these really painful things, um, you know, racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia, which is this word self-care. And that comes up a lot. And, you know, some people roll their eyes around it because it's being used so much. But I think it's a really beautiful phrase, which is about, you know, really taking care of yourself and making sure that you're healed enough and strong enough to be able to then get back in there and keep fighting. And a lot of people in my circles talk about witchcraft as self-care and witchcraft as one tool in your toolkit for strengthening and sustaining yourself and, and, and offering sanctuary and haven. You know, I'm in a coven now I've been in and out of some over the years, and I love my coven now. Oh, it's so, so good. How did you find them? I started it. I, you know, make the coven you want to see in the world. But what was interesting about this is I wanted to start this coven, but I did not want to be its leader. You know, I curated some of the most amazing women that I know And I really wanted it to be super intersectional and have all different kinds of points of view, different backgrounds, different experiences, different styles. So that was really important to me. But we each take turns being the leader and hosting. And it's so, I cannot tell you the the beauty that comes through and the healing that comes through from a group of us getting together and doing magic and talking about painful things and laughing our asses off and celebrating our bodies and celebrating nature and and beautiful holy days. I mean, it's incredibly healing. I think healing is something that's a big part of modern witchcraft, actually. It might not be coming through in pop culture as much, but it's a really big part of, of modern witchcraft. And especially those of us who think that our witchcraft is very much related to social justice and environmentalism and, you know, all kinds of political issues that we need to really be interfacing with and and be strengthening ourselves to uh, help amplify in positive ways. So when you look at the guy in the White House. Yes. I love how we don't like saying his name. It is a little like Voldemort, isn't it? (laughs) He who shall not be named. Yes. In the White House. Yep. 
can we bring a healing current to that? Uh, I think that's the question of the age. I really do. And that's something I think about all the time, especially, you know, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are involved in some of these public spells you might have heard of. There's the spell to bind Trump that happens every uh, new moon, I believe it is. And right now there's a spell to hex Kavanaugh that's getting a lot of attention in the press and all of these things. Should I give him hemorrhoids? (laughs) Um, I would just love to see him not be able to sit on the Supreme Court bench. So if hemorrhoids is going to do it, I mean, I don't know. But point being, you know, I, I have kind of ambivalent feelings about these things. I think it's wonderful for us to unify and to do community actions that feel healing and that can sometimes be tongue in cheek or sometimes be really serious. But I also hope people are actually like going to vote and, you know, are actually donating, donating money to nonprofits that really need it and, and just being good citizens and, and people in the world. And in terms of someone like the person in the White House, you know, I don't want to send him hexes. I want justice to come to him. That is my intention for that person. I hope justice comes to him. It would be wonderful to send him lots of light and love. When I'm in a real good mood, I will try doing that sometimes, but I would be satisfied with justice right now. Sometimes I wonder whether the power of working with these these sort of consciousness energy currents, it lays in our flipping the paradigm to such an extent that we can bring ourselves to to hold the wound of those many people who in this country are truly wounded yep. in order to help them relax and release, to bring the temperature down so we have less of this heavy-duty, aggressive animosity and polarization going on. Right. You know, I'm an old-time political activist yeah. myself. Yeah. And my tendency used to be, man, you hit me, I'm going to hit you twice as hard. Yep. Look out. Yep. And every time I look at an article about he who shall not be named yes. on my iPhone, my initial reaction is, look out. Yeah. I'm going to whack. You're yep. going to feel it. Yep. You're going to feel it. And yep. then I recognize on some level that that's happened. And then I realize, you know, that's his game. Yeah. He wants people he, to be whipped into a frenzy and distracted and upset. Oh, yes. And... We're not going to win that game. We've been playing that game for as long as the politics has been this heated. And we're in a different moment now. The moment it feels to me that we're in is one where, in fact, the progressive cultural wave actually has the majority of the country. There have been many wins on our side over the last 50 years that have dramatically shifted what's happening in this country that have changed that's changed the way the most that everybody thinks and many people are thinking more like we do at a base level of understanding say the importance of women being equal the, the being treated in an equal way the, the recognizing the, the, the feminine 60% are in favor of gay marriage i mean there's things that 
10 years ago, you would never have seen happen. Even, you know, let's just say legalization of cannabis. Certain things that are, you know, signs of a shift, of shifting. The system now, today, with he who should not be named at, you know, standing at the top of this house of cards is now trembling and, 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 and losing its legitimacy in the eyes of many, many, many people. The structure is falling apart. And many folks around the country who are not in concert with this wave that you and I feel strongly associated with are freaking out and feel deeply wounded. That's where I'm interested in bringing healing. Okay. That's beautiful, Ken. And I don't disagree, but I also think that as this old dusty dinosaur is crashing down. It is gripping on with every claw that it has. And it is doing things to make new rules as it goes. And it's doing things to shore up as much power as it can. So yes, we have the numbers, but if you then have voter ID laws or ways that you're suppressing voters or ways in which you're preventing minority groups from voting or having a voice, doesn't matter how many people agree with us. If the fucking assholes in charge are going to make the rules and change them so those people cannot vote or cannot have a voice, they're still going to stay in power. Totally agree. I, I, of course, I'm on the side of like healing and I'm on the side of trying to send as much love and tenderness and forgiveness to a lot of people who are in pain and, and a lot of people who maybe are regretting voting for this person and who now, you know, hopefully, you know, the scales are falling from their eyes and their consciousness is being shifted too. I really hope that's happening. But I also think that we have to be vigilant and put our resources towards, yes, our magic, but also in the material world, fighting against this, I believe, evil and depression in every way that we possibly can. And if, if witchcraft or spirituality or meditation or all those things are tools in our arsenal for that, that's a wonderful thing. See, I look at the 70,000 people in the Midwest who basically flipped the election mm -hmm. and wonder what we could do to help them feel that they're being addressed so that they see that we're with them. Mm -hmm. Because that would have made all the difference. You know what I'm saying? In terms of that would have made a huge difference in what happened in this election. Mm -hmm. Which is to say, yeah, you got to look at each fight and you got to be strong and you can't be naive. But to me, on some level, there's also something naive about thinking that we're going to win by bringing back the same force that's coming at us in the same way. Sure. We need a different approach. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you at all, but I think anger is healthy if it is then channeled towards productivity. You know, Ken, you, you've obviously been someone who's done a lot of work to come to the point in your life that you're at. And, and I think absolutely like meditation and, and sending love to everybody is, is the ideal. It's absolutely the ideal. 
But I mean, not you, in an abstract way. It's like, you know, right. somebody's hungry, you give them food. You sure, know? sure, of right. course. But if you have all of these queer people and women and people of color who have been told to shut up and who are constantly being, I mean, squeezed in so many different ways and told they're valueless and their rights being stripped from them all the time to say, you shouldn't be angry. Well, I'm like, I'm like, be angry. Oh, it's nothing wrong. Yeah. Ang- anger is a great thing, but anger is anger is important because it lets you know. It's not that be all, end all. It's not where you stop. I agree with you. It's not you. where you stop. I you agree start, with you. Anger is when you recognize it's an that engine. you're being, yeah. Anger is when you recognize that something is coming at you that is not to your benefit. You go, oh man, I am angry. Mm-hmm. The next step is to learn to not stay in your anger, but to f- Turn that anger into something that's going to be constructive, that will make a difference so that you don't have to continue to be angry. I agree. And this is why I do not like doing hexes on people. I mean, to kind of close the loop here, because I think that comes from that place of anger and fear, which, you know, to your point, you're fighting, you you, you risk turning into the energy that you're fighting against. Totally. Um, so, so I think we're kind of dancing around the same thing, for sure, for sure. And the witchy work as a movement is spreading and becoming a real force in the culture. To me, it feels like an opportunity to create innovative ways to take that anger and move it into something that's constructive and powerful for change. But I think that's what's happening, Ken. Maybe you haven't seen it yet, but so many of the people I know who are identifying as witches, whether in their spiritual lives, their political lives, their cultural lives, however they're signaling their witchery, it's not just like a fuck you. That might be a little part of it. For some people, it might be a lot of it. But for a lot of people, it's about standing in our power and building community and coming up with solutions and healing. I mean, even even the folks who are hexing Kavanaugh, they're donating a lot of the money to Planned Parenthood. Like like the, the witch as an activist and the witch as someone who's defending the vulnerable is really part of this, this current wave of witchery that I'm seeing. And that's really hopeful and galvanizing and, and beautiful. So... I think it's happening already, Ken. I think you'd be happy to see some of the things that I'm seeing. I'm seeing some of it. I'm excited to see more. Yes. Perfect. Thanks so much, Pam. Thank you for having me. It's such a joy to talk to you. Magic is in the eye of the beholder. My grandfather would have thought the iPhone was magic. And his grandmother would have felt the same about a gas-fueled automobile. You know, I'm pretty sure myself that quantum entanglement is some kind of spooky magic. One day in the future, I suspect that many of the witchy practices that involve occult energies will become better understood and integrated into society and will feel as normal as downloading a podcast. We're at the threshold of a new understanding of how energy and intention operate in the world. What will it mean to be a witch when all of us are witches. I want to thank Pam Grossman for being a guest on the podcast and thank you too for joining us. You can follow Pam on her website, pamgrossman.com, as well as on her wonderful blog, phantasmeal.com, and on her Instagram, which is phantasmeal as well. 
You spell Phantasmeal, P-H-A-N-T-A-S-M-A-P-H-I-L-E. If you like what we're doing here on The Evolver, please share this episode on social media. Tell your friends about it over a tea or a herbal elixir. And mention it in the hall after yoga class. If you can leave a star rating on iTunes, that would also be huge. Those stars really do make a difference in how many people we can reach. You can send us a note at theevolver at evolver.net. We're getting some great questions from you all and really appreciate it. And we're now preparing a podcast where I do my best to answer some of them. So if you've got a good question to ask, please send it our way. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Media. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the entire Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song, and our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions from Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.